0: Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. What is up? Welcome to the Los Angeles Dodgers podcast on the Believe Network. I'm J.P. Hornstra of the Southern California News Group. The offseason is almost over, with 60 days until opening day as of today, Monday, January 30th, as I speak. The Dodgers, they want to make opening day feel a little less distant. Today marked the beginning of the annual community caravan, culminating with FanFest on Saturday. That means a lot of players will be in town, some for the first time in months. Some of them won't be back in town until opening day. In fact, some are probably headed straight from FanFest to Camelback Ranch this weekend. We can almost start thinking about this offseason in the past tense. And if you're a fan, let's face it, this is not the offseason you were hoping for. It isn't hard to figure out how we got here either. Trevor Bauer was reinstated, designated for assignment, and his salary is still on the books. The Dodgers tried getting under the luxury tax threshold, and who knows, they still might get there. Either way, the upshot is the same. No big trades, no big free agent signings in a big free agent winter. The contracts that Clayton Kershaw, Noah Syndergaard, and J.D. Martinez got are not in the same stratosphere as the deals the Dodgers gave to Freddie Freeman, Bauer, and Mookie Betts the past three years. So from that standpoint, thinking about the offseason in the past tense might feel deflating. For me, I guess it's all relative. This actually reminds me a little bit of 2015. You guys remember that winter? That was Andrew Friedman's first offseason, after the Dodgers hired him away from Tampa Bay. It was not a total roster reset, because the Dodgers still had a lot of the same key players coming back. That year it was Adrian Gonzalez, Yasiel Puig, Andre Ethier, Clayton Kershaw, Zach Grinke, Kenley Jansen... But Hanley Ramirez was gone. Matt Kemp was gone. Yasmani Grandal was in. Justin Turner was about to become entrenched at third base after taking over for Juan Uribe midway through 2014. None of the other key players in 2015 was a key player the year before. And I mean none of them. Just go back and look at the roster if you forget. The big, big thing, though, that 2015 represented was the beginning of a steady stream of prospect coming through that minor league pipeline. 2015 was Jock Peterson's first year. 2016, Corey Seager was the rookie of the year. 2017, Cody Bellinger was the rookie of the year. 2018, Walker Buehler debuted. 2019, Dustin May, Tony Gonsolin, and Will Smith all got called up. And honestly, right now, in the middle of prospect ranking week, that is... Kind of where my mindset is. I'm thinking about how this roster is going to look in the next five years or so. Keith Law's top 100 came out today. He had Diego Cartaya 6th, Miguel Vargas 23rd, Gavin Stone 39th, Dalton Rushing at 62, Andy Pias at 67, Michael Bush at 74, and James Outman at 89. MLB Pipeline just dropped its top 100. They also gave the Dodgers seven spots. It's the same seven guys, save Ryan Pepio. He's at number 70. James Altman did not make their list. Fangraph's top 100 is not out yet, but if you go to their big board right now, there are only 27 prospects who are given a 50 future value or higher. The Dodgers have six of those 27 guys. And Baseball America, not out yet either, but I expect something similar Uh, based on Kyle Glazer's report on the Dodgers' top 10. He's pretty high on those guys. We'll see. Look, it is perfectly reasonable to ask who is going to replace Trey Turner in the lineup and at shortstop. I don't know who's going to play center field. I don't know who's going to step in for Clayton Kershaw when he goes on the IL. These are all good questions. But it's easy to miss the fact that if the consensus is anywhere near accurate, we are probably standing on the precipice of a very similar run to the end of the last decade when the Dodgers annually cranked out a rookie of the year candidate or something close to it, depending on what time of the year the guy gets called up. And this is the weird thing that the Dodgers do. When they decide they're going to go out and spend, they usually spend pretty smart on players who are eligible for free agency relative to every other team that pins its hope on spending money on free agents. When the Dodgers decide they're going to go out and draft and develop, they usually do that as smartly as any team that pins its hope on drafting and developing. For most teams, both of those things are not true. But in the Dodgers case, it is. The only other team you can really say that about is the Houston Astros, and the only reason they have two World Series rings to the Dodgers won over the last six years is because they cheated. So, yes, given how last season ended, this winter was a bummer. I'm sure it was not the front office's plan A to lose in the first round to San Diego and have Trevor Bauer represent $34 million of dead money on the salary cap payroll, and no, I did not expect the Dodgers' failed pursuit of Kevin Kiermeyer, of all people, to have such heavy implications on spring training. Even though their free agent budget was apparently tiny, I just don't see anything that happened in the last three months as a major deviation from the Dodgers' usual playbook. Assuming they're able to get back under that first salary cap threshold. Now, they're less than $5 million over at the moment. Trade Blake Trinan and a prospect to literally any team that can absorb about $11 million on two players who are probably not going to help them this year. And that problem is solved. Steve Cohen, I'm looking at you. But I see these prospect rankings coming out right now as validation that, well, maybe this was the right year to restart a new youth movement. Because after... Dustin May and Tony Gonsolin. The flow of prospects didn't dry up totally, but it slowed to a drip. There was Gavin Lux. There was Cabert Ruiz. He got traded to Washington. And that was about it. Right now, I'm looking at the Dodgers' top 30 prospects of 2020, according to MLB.com. And of everybody I'm seeing on this list... Josiah Gray and Bruce Dargraderall were both acquired in trades from other teams, so they weren't actually drafted or signed as amateurs by the Dodgers. Of everybody else, Mitch White is in Toronto, Dennis Santana is in Atlanta, Zach McKinstry is in Chicago, Eben Uceta is in Detroit. Those are the only guys who came up through the Dodgers system who have had a chance to make an impact at the big league level. Everybody else either didn't make it or they're on the Dodgers active roster right now. This whole seven prospects out of the top 100 thing, this is not something the Dodgers have had in a while. For a minute there, they really did have to spend their way to get to the top. Now, if the chips fall where they should, they don't. Anyway, back to 2015, I don't think any of us were certain how competitive the Dodgers were going to be without Matt Kemp, without D Gordon, without Hanley Ramirez. My inkling about James Outman right now is about as strong as my inkling was on Jock Peterson then. I look at where they were at that time, I look at where they are now, I see the Dodgers have a really strong farm system. And if that is all they can pin their hopes on for the foreseeable future, they've walked this path before. It's not bleak. The dividends just might not be immediate. I don't think that's exactly the message you're going to be blasting out at FanFest, but it's the truth. It's where the Dodgers are right now. It's not the best place to be. It's not the worst place to be. Anyway, Sean Green is coming on. Uh, we talked about the Hall of Fame election. We talked about Fan Fest. We talked about the World Baseball Classic. Uh, we talked about a hard-nosed Toronto Blue Jays rookie named Jeff Kent. Rookie Jeff Kent just sounds like an oxymoron. Anyway, stay tuned for that coming up next.
1: And I'm pleased to welcome back to the podcast, Sean Green. How are you doing, Sean? Doing well. How are you, JP? I'm doing good. I'm feeling validated about my choice of Scott Rowan. Um, as one of 10 names that I checked off on my Hall of Fame ballot this year, Scott Rowland was inducted to the Hall of Fame on Tuesday. He got the official call, and I wanted to start with him, Sean, because he was somebody that you played against for a long time. And he was kind of an interesting candidate because when he debuted on the ballot, uh ten percent of writers voted for him. He was closer to falling off that first year than he was to getting inducted and appreciation of his career seemed to grow really over the last five uh six years. He he got in on his sixth try. I'm wondering what your experience was, Sean, if, if your appreciation for him grew <laughs> kind of slowly and steadily or if he was somebody that when you were on the other side of the, the field from Scott Rowland, you looked at as somebody who you thought would be in the Hall of Fame someday.
2: Yeah, no, he he was a great player. And, you know, it's it's one of those things where I, I think the criteria is it's becoming sort of a moving target over the last 10 years, whereas when up until maybe the last 10, 15 years, there's like certain things as a hitter. It's like you, if you get your 3000 hits or 500 home runs or, you know, some other possibly like 10 gold, whatever it is. I mean, that's a little bit less of a guarantee, but there's certain things that were guarantees and I think now it's kind of changed because there's much more of a focus on war and a lot of the, the people voting kind of your generation and younger are um, maybe have a little bit different mindset as to, what constitutes a hall of famer so i, I think scott roland is he's, a, he's kind of you know there's there's a few really interesting cases over the last couple of years like harold baines another one but i i think he is the guy that could go either way i think there's other players out there that i would that would jump out at me that should be close like a guy like jeff kent um mean, a guy like carl stilgato didn't even make it past the first he he fell right off and he almost had 500 home runs. And it was, I think as a player, you look at like who you're really worried about to come up in a key situation, you know, for 10 straight years or 15 years. And he was definitely a guy you weren't excited to see up there, but it wasn't like on that team. He wasn't the number one or two guy. Usually he was probably like maybe the the third guy, I mean, second or third guy, depending on what part of his career. And so, yeah, I mean, he had, he had an awesome career was he Hall of Famer? I, I think fifteen, twenty years ago, maybe not. But um, I think with the, the way the mindset has focused um, shifted more towards war, then then now it, it makes a lot more sense. And I mean, he's a great guy. I heard he's a great teammate. And whether or not someone gets that final nod is it could be uh, you know pre pre arbitrary. Yes, you know, it's, it's it's hard to say this this guy belongs. This guy doesn't. So it's yeah. I mean, it's, I don't think it's by any stretch. You know, uh, a bad decision,
1: but it's, it's it's
2: definitely one I think has shifted with the kind of the changing criteria.
1: No, absolutely, uh, I'm glad you mentioned Jeff Kent, who fell off the ballot, did not get inducted in his tenth and final year of eligibility. We were talking before this, Sean. I, I think he's somebody who has a very good chance of getting inducted by a Veterans Committee uh, at some point. I think three years, maybe four, is, is going to be the next time his era comes up. But you know that. That era was a big home run hitting era, and Jeff Kent hit more home runs than any second baseman in history. Those are the kind of stats that jump out at you. But even just the fact that in his time, Jeff Kent won an MVP award. He finished in the top 10 in MVP voting in three other seasons. Scott Rowland was a top 10 MVP vote getter once uh, in his 17 seasons, and it was really just the fact that he was a steady third baseman on the defensive side for as long as he was that I think pushed him over that translates to any era in my opinion but I personally would have liked to have seen Jeff Kent get in not just so we could talk about a Dodger getting in on the Dodger podcast but also because he was one of the best ever to play his position certainly one of the best offensive second baseman ever
2: yeah and and Scott Rowland back to him the defense was was awesome and he, you know, he was like a vacuum over there and, and you knew anything to that side of the field. Um, even stuff kind of moving pretty close to shortstop, he'd, you'd, he'd you'd get over there and, and make incredible plays. And, and there are other third basemen like Brooks Rawlinson and stuff that were kind of, um uh, and I wouldn't say Scott Rawlins was glove first, but he was, you know, he's, he's a little bit more known for his glove, but he was a great hitter too. Um, and, and in terms of Jeff Kent, yeah, I mean, to win an MVP and be in the top 10 three times, I mean, that's, that's amazing, actually, as a second baseman, putting up the power numbers he did. I mean, granted, he he did have the you know, the benefit of playing for the Giants alongside of Barry Bonds, batting usually behind him, and, you know, you put Barry Bonds on base 250, 300 times, maybe right, more than that, probably 300, 400 times. Yeah. Um, you're going to get more opportunities and all that. So um, he did have bad advantage, but it is also a harder thing to do is to hit behind the greatest hitter Who's ever played the game and have to have that pressure of of supporting him. So I think a guy like Jeff Kent, for me, while I was playing against him, felt like more of a Hall of Fame caliber player than some of these other guys that have gotten in, you know, like Harold Baines and and Scott Rowland. And again, taking nothing away from them because they had amazing careers. Um, But you look at some of the guys that get snubbed that, you know, were never caught up in the, PED, you know, suspicion or, um, you know, testing situation and didn't even
1: make it after or get get super close after 10 years. It's it's kind of surprising. I I, I wasn't planning on asking you this, but you you reminded me before this uh, recording that uh, you guys actually were in spring training together with the Blue Jays early in uh, each of your careers. Did he have that hard-nosed veteran aura even as a man in his young 20s? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah I mean, he was really young at the time so I was
2: 19 he's probably I would guess he's probably you know, 23 24 and was I think that was probably his rookie season 92 and they ended up trading him pretty shortly after and that's when the Blue Jays went, won the World Series in 1993 so whatever piece they needed I, I can't remember I think he went to the Mets maybe from Toronto but yeah he was always just uh, all business and sure. Um, you know, I think he rubbed he rubbed some guys wrong. Definitely, like media and stuff like that. I think at, t- at times might have had issues, which maybe that affects the Hall of Fame votes. But um, yeah, he was he was the kind of guy that you know just focused on performing well in the field and and you know didn't care if he upset people along the way. You know, as long as he got his job done.
1: Jeff Kent was traded to. Mets on August twenty seventh, nineteen ninety two, for David Cohn. So That's right, I David think, Cohn. So it's a pretty good trade. Yeah, even then somebody in that front office knew the kind of caliber player he could be. That was right around David Cohn's peak as a as a pitcher and uh, nearly a Hall of Fame career of his own. So good. Good, good good, bit of remembering there uh, to kick things off. Uh, <laughs> wanted to switch gears a little bit and uh, talk about the WBC because um, it is coming up. We're starting to see some roster announcements, some press conferences, some hype building for this event, which we haven't seen in five years. And uh, five years ago, the uh, U.S. beat Puerto Rico in the final. I covered that game in San Diego. It was a blast. And this year, um, Clayton Kershaw, will be joined by Mookie Betts and Will Smith on Team USA. I don't know if 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I think the first one was in 2006, if players of that caliber are nearly as interested in, in being part of the WBC as they are now. Uh, it really doesn't get any bigger uh, name-wise than Clayton Kershaw and Mookie Betts. Uh, Sean, you are a WBC alumnus. What was the talk around the event like in your time and, and how have you kind of seen it grown into what it is today? Yeah, no, I think
2: it's it's a great concept and I think the players, particularly the the Latin players, are are very proud of where they're from. Um, you know, you get they're pretty close now with Puerto Rican, the Dominican Republic, the Cuban, Venezuelan, Mexican player, like all those players are, you know, a lot of them will have like a some type of you know, flag logo somewhere on their gear, on the shirt, or on their hat if they're allowed to. So there's a lot of a sense of pride. So they and they love playing together because you know a lot of them play together in different winter leagues and and no matter what team they're on, they know each other. You know, usually pretty well. So I think from that perspective, it's kind of built a different type of camaraderie in the game amongst you know the people of your home. And and it's the same thing with. I think the the Japanese players and Korean players and all that type of stuff. It, it's great to see that I think the American players, because there's so many American players that they've um, kind of followed suit and are now excited to get on there and 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 try to to you know beat the teams that usually are are favored. I think the Dominicans always super tough, Venezuela's super tough, Puerto Rico super tough. So. Um, you know, I think in the past, like right, when it first started, a lot of pitchers and, and some players maybe weren't as excited to do it because of the time of year. They're not, you know, really in midseason form or anything. So they want to, they don't want to get hurt. They don't want to, some of the hitters like don't want to go out there and, and not be at their, at their peak. But I think now it's, it's gotten to the point where, um, you know, there's a lot of bragging rights in the clubhouse, too, after you're able to pull off some, some victories against your your regular season teammates that are from other countries.
1: Absolutely. I'm, I'm looking at the Dominican roster right now just in terms of players who have announced their intent to play for the team in WBC this year. Juan Soto, Jose Ramirez, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Julio Rodriguez, Starling Marte, Jeremy Pena, uh, Gary Sanchez will catch. Like, this is... Uh, close to an all-star team like very close to an actual all-star team if you told me that was like an all-star team i would ask why gary sanchez was on there but otherwise i would not blink an eye uh us is going to have its work cut out for them and i just think to your point like when you have the best players on the field and you see that that caliber of play uh is reflected in in the passion and the talent my goodness um i think it's going to be a fun event this year
2: yeah. Yeah. I do too. And it, it's, it's pretty cool too. Cause a lot of times guys coaching will be, you know, stars of, you know, their country that usually a generation off, you know, so I don't know, a few years ago, like Carl Sogato and I think, I don't know if Beltran was there, but you know, guys like that, Alex Cora, I think before he became a manager, like some of those, those types of guys are the ones that, you know, are, are excited to be part of it too. And, and so you, you get like this really, really neat, Kind of generational um, pride and and all that and uh, you know it's it's building and and getting I think stronger each year. I think the challenge I think is there's, for baseball there's there's really no good time to do it and yeah it does add a little more excitement to March because you know it's more about who's going to make the team usually and you know so and so getting healthy or you know whatever it is um, and now it adds it adds much more um, I think buzz around baseball to to get. to to lead into opening day.
1: I think so too. And I think that what it's easy to forget is that it only came into being really because the Olympic committee voted to eliminate baseball from the list of Olympic sports and to hold baseball in the summer Olympics. Well, you're not going to get any major league players and you're also going to force people to play for countries that, uh, you know, like most countries don't even have a chance this way, you allow Puerto Rico to field its own team. Well, Puerto Rico isn't a country, but clearly there's a lot of great Puerto Rican ballplayers who can represent that flag, and you allow a lot of other countries, like I know you played for Team Israel, and there are a lot of good Jewish-American baseball players out there who represent Team Israel, and I, I just, I think the format as well as the timing, is probably as good as it can get. And it's way better than Olympic baseball. Like, I don't miss, I, maybe I'm in the minority, but like, I don't miss Olympic baseball because the WBC is staged as well as it is.
2: Yeah, and I think, you know, hopefully over time they, they get even more creative. I mean, it'd be kind of cool, I don't know, I'm just making some up as we go along here, but it'd be kind of cool to have maybe different regions of the U.S. like North, South, mm. West, and West, and just to add um, a little more flavor, because there's a lot of guys maybe there's a ton of guys from California, a ton of guys from Florida. Um, a lot of great players from, our, you know, you wouldn't expect it, but states like Michigan and like Smoltz and Jeter and all these like mm. hall of famers, you know, former Cy Young teammate of mine, Pat Hankins. So you yeah, know, a lot of these, and, and then a lot of these guys know each other from playing against each other in high school or college in these different places. So it could be, there's, there's, I think there's some, some fun things they could do to, to add to it. But you know, it's as of right now, it's, it's, I think it's it's working well and and you know hopefully interest just keeps keeps building and and some of these teams you know like japan and korea that are you know all across the globe are and hopefully those fan bases um i think they do get really excited but hopefully they're just excited as the ones that are you know are are closer out here in in the west
1: absolutely well speaking of building interest. Uh, it's been a while since we've had any actual baseball here to watch stateside, and, and that usually usually helps uh, build anticipation for a new season, which is why FanFest usually draws as well as it does. Uh, FanFest at Dodger Stadium will be held a week from this Saturday, February 4th. I know, Sean, that you've taken part in FanFest as an alumni, and of course there's the Community Caravan Week leading up to it. It's kind of the last thing that the Dodgers will do as a team in the off season before spring training. And I I used to take this for granted, but ever since I had to cover baseball in the 2020 pandemic season where you're surrounded by cardboard cutouts and it's quiet and it's weird. I just, I don't take the presence of that many fans cheering for the Dodgers for granted. Even if it's just guys putting on a uniform up on a stage in the middle of the field, like I'm, I appreciate the hype. (laughs) Yeah, and
2: I, I, it was really fun doing it and, and the Dodger fans always turn out excited and, you know, decked out in their gear and, and they've had a lot to, to be excited about. It's been such a great run for the Dodgers and, you know, the expectations are for it to continue, you know, for the foreseeable future. So. Um, to be able to get the Dodgers in the community and, and the community, you know, the charitable stuff is awesome getting out there and, you know, whether it's going to children's hospitals or cleaning up the beach and, you know, those are some of the things, going to schools, some of the things that I've been a part of um, in, in these past caravans. I used to do it in Toronto. We'd go up and, and do uh, all through Canada because they're Can- Canada's team and want to, you know, take over the whole country there. Um, so those things are <laughs> You know, it's 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 fun. It's definitely it, it could be a lot. You know, because sometimes you get pretty drained because you're going from one thing to the next, and you have to be on and and you know you you don't want to interact with people and not give them your you know your full attention and your best. So you know by the end of it, you're definitely exhausted. But it's it, it's it's very gratifying to know that, um, you know you're you're making an impact, and um, these people are are cheering for you. They're the ones paying the salaries for for the players and. And the ones that make it exciting go out there and play in front of a packed house that's screaming and yelling.
1: Yeah, I think the best ones are the ones with kids. I know I'm looking at the schedule here. There's a caravan event at Whittier High School on Friday, February 3rd. Some of the players are going to be shopping for shoes with kids uh, the day prior on Thursday. Um, there's a field trip to the Discovery Cube. It just seems like whenever you get a major league baseball player in the presence of children, it like it doesn't matter if he is the first guy on the roster or the twenty sixth, They just go nuts, and it is so fun to watch.
2: Yeah, no, definitely the kid stuff's is great. But I, also, I will counter on the high school. High school, those kids are tough, man. I've, I've done a couple of those, and you know, one time people you're getting heckled by some, you know, a little you know, one of the <laughs> class clowns or whatever. So high school is a little tougher, but that's the one. Other than that, it's, uh, it's awesome because you see how, so I, I love the, you know, the grade school, like the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh graders is there. You, know, you can just see in their eyes, like how, um, how much it means to them to, to see the players. I mean, those are the ones that are wearing a Dodger, their favorite Dodger player for Halloween costumes. And, and, and those are the ones that you know, are standing over there asking for balls, getting, getting their gloves signed, their hat signed. So it, it means so much, and you know that's how I was when I was that age. I I uh, worshiped the players, and and then you get you, know, you get a little older, and and you start focusing more on other things, including you know my, for me, I was like my, I was more worried about playing when I was you know 16, 17, 18, and where I was going to head than following the game as much as I did. i was still a fan, but it's a different it's a different dynamic. But when you're younger, it's like those players are they're like you know they are your heroes. Did you get heckled by a high schooler? I actually did. Yeah. I mean, a couple of times, but yeah, no, I, no, I got heckled. Uh, I think it was my, yeah, I had a mediocre first year with the Dodgers. I come over and then I did a, went to a, a high school. I don't know if it was during the season or maybe right after. And you know, somebody's like, why do you suck? And I'm like, Oh jeez, Okay. And it was hard it was hard to, it's hard to kind of like regather yourself um, when someone keeps you up. But I mean, that was, it, it was what it was. It was and it's, but you don't I guess my point is you usually don't get that at high schools, you could, but you're not gonna get that at a grammar school or a junior high or a children's right. hospital. It's just a totally different vibe. But yeah, anything with anything with kids is is the most gratifying. You you leave there and when you see the, the excitement in their faces, then it's it's you know, so rewarding. It makes kinda of all the ups and downs and you know, slumps and all that stuff that you go through as a player it makes it all you know, kind of worth it where you say, okay,
1: I'm making an impact. I, I substitute taught high school like more than a decade ago. I got heckled plenty, Sean. That's nothing. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> yeah. I, I get it. No, I, I seriously, I,
2: like I, you know, I have one daughter still in high school and one in college, but it's, I have so much respect for high school teachers to see, you yeah. you go there and, and you see how some of these, the attitudes of some kids, I mean, most kids are great, but obviously, you know, you get a, you know, 30 kids in a classroom, there's going to be a couple punks in there that are, you know, not wanting to be there at all. And and it's tough. And those teachers, geez, I mean, it's a rewarding way to earn
1: a living, but it's tough.
2: I mean, you've got to be exhausted at the end of each day, for sure.
1: Let teachers attend FanFest for free, I think is the upshot here. That's what it should be. I think it's, <laughs> it's a good, it's a good call we've made some we've progress the on this kind of process. yeah y- yeah like <laughs> on that note Sean, I'll let you go thanks as always for joining me here on the podcast
2: yeah yeah thanks JP and, and look forward to getting things rolling here in a couple of weeks absolutely I'm
0: looking forward to it there you have it thanks to Sean Green for hopping on the podcast thank you for listening If you have not done so already, please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. Every one of those things helps. I'll be back next time. In the meantime, be well.